you know, when we are on retreat, we're in one way of thinking about it. We are practicing for life outside of retreat. And when we're outside of retreat, we're practicing being in retreat. Um, well, over time, they coalesce such that it's hard to really discern much of a difference. That's my experience. Um, although during retreat, uh, time seems to go even faster. Time, time is very strange for me. And um, this, I can't believe it's been five days or four and a half days or whatever. It's like a blink of an eye. Um, and yet energetically so much, so much has played out in a beautiful way. So, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, the theme of this retreat is simplicity. And if we engage life and we engage the moment, trusting in simplicity, then we don't need to complicate anything. We don't, I talked a lot about past and future and the illusion of time and th thoughts related to time during this retreat. And that's a very good way to uh, keep things simple is don't get too uh, caught up in the complexity of time, the complexity of thought. What is, what is needed is right in front of your face. What is true is right in front of your face. What is real is right in front of your face all the time. And the senses, it doesn't get any more simple than the senses. You can always go to the sound and it always tells the truth, even if the mind doesn't understand it <laughs> or wants to make more out of it than it is really there but it's it's right there it's right in the sound and it's right in the sensation and the breath whatever leads you back easily it's in the color forms movement shapes shades many of us know the um the environments in which the that clarity comes alive for us often it's in nature or perhaps painting or listening to music or making music or movement moving the body naturally spontaneously intuitively and sometimes it's just that simple just trusting what you already know don't overcomplicate this whole process. Trusting your own intuition that it feels good to move the body. When I move the body, the mind gets quiet. When I move the body, I feel like I'm in the right place. Uh, I think we sometimes get addicted to uh, thinking about problems, thinking about what's not right, like we got to fix it, or what, what's not here, like we have to find it. But all of that's thought. The simplicity will just lead you back to what's here right now and also to your intuition that says in certain environments or certain situations, I'm more naturally clear. It feels natural to me. That's your natural meditation. So trust it. 
make space in your life for that which um, is not complicated, that which doesn't require thought. And sometimes we have to um, go against the socially uh, endorsed conditioning a bit to break away from, from that, to give ourselves the space to do what's simple, what's natural for us. There's a really cool um, video I posted every once in a while on my Facebook group. Um, it's by a guy named Slomo. It's about a, a man named Slomo. And I think it's I think it's in California. It's at some beach. And everyone at the beach knows this this guy and he rides around on roller skates, but he does it all day long. And he but he he'll glide like on one skate with one leg in the air and he glides really slowly and he just keeps going that way all day long. And they interviewed him in this um in this short documentary. And he was a physician and he was an like a double boarded physician. He was a neurologist and a psychiatrist, I think. And he worked for many years and he talked about how he was, you know, kind of feeling like in the rat race, working really hard, burning out all the time, never really satisfied, never really happy. And he met a like 90 something year old, like very, very sort of elderly man in a lunch line somewhere in his earlier life or in his, his, his professional life. And he said, and he, and he said he looked really happy. He looked really at ease and at peace. And he said, "What's the secret to looking so at peace and then you know being happy?" And he said, "Oh, just do what you want. Do what you want." And he said that was so radical to hear that, doing what you want, because he was so used to doing what he thought he was supposed to do, and his life was very complex, very complicated. There's a lot going on all the time, as you can imagine, right? So uh, over time, he digested that, and then. It, this this wasn't fully addressed, but I, I, he might have had some kind of stroke or a brain injury or something because he, at some point, unless he had it all along, I don't know, but at some point he developed the um, maybe called adenosmia. There's a there's a neurologic disorder where you can't recognize faces, but everything all his other function was normal. But he couldn't actually recognize people's faces even if he knew them. So anyway, uh, but other than that, he. He was the same guy he was before. So he decided to basically retire and live in a small apartment and live a very simple life because he remembered when he was a kid, he loved the feeling of gliding or flying, um, moving through the air, moving naturally. So, so he decided to just do it every day, all day long. And he found out he was really happy. He just, just does it all the time. <laughs> and he's, he's very happy. And all the, also people who come into contact with him all seemed to have that perception that it rubs off, you know, when they, when they come into contact with him and talk to him, uh, it teaches them something. His name's slow-mo. Pretty cool. Uh, so there's just one example. I'm not saying you should do that, but, uh, everyone has something in their life, some part of our experience that, um, is, is natural entry point or more than one, a natural entry point to the senses, to simplicity, to childlike innocence and wonder. And, um, of course, responsibilities are important to take care of and, and all, but we often overburden ourselves with unnecessary, unnecessary responsibilities and un unnecessary self-judgment and unnecessary thinking and analysis and planning and all of it. So, yeah, I would just suggest, you know, take a little time in your life to find, 
ways to be more simple, like sitting for five days with a, an adorable puppy dog. Um, why not? Yeah. What is more precious than the hand and the fur, the feeling, that sensation, the warmth? Like, what's more enticing than that? What's more real than that? Yeah. And for many of us, it's also meditation. It's sitting that, that resonates deeply with us, right? That's great. Give yourself time and space to do it, you know? Uh, as Josh Putnam says, you know, this is all play, turns out. We just want to play. And the the spiritual project can be such a big, prominent project in our lives, right? Because it's so important. Even if we don't know what it is, even if we don't really know what it means or where it's leading or any of it, um, it may be very structured practice-wise. It may be based in a tradition. There are people here who are, live monastic lives in this retreat. There are people here who live completely conventional lives and rarely meditate. Um, so there's all different approaches to practice and lifestyle and tradition and all of it. Uh, but I think what we all share is a, is a deep reverence and love for this possibility, this transformation, not in time, this completely paradoxical, um, path we take that is sometimes very difficult, very painful, challenging, um, and yet the whole time we're told and we, we start to intuit more and more that really there's nowhere to go and everything really is already okay. And at some point those really come together. Uh, but we share the reverence for it in whatever way we do. Some, for some of us, it's very heart-based. For some of, it's, if some of, some of us, it's very um, intention-based, perhaps, practice-based. For some people, it's all about surrender. Uh, but what I find actually is it's, we don't need to take it seriously necessarily. And we certainly don't need to make it complex. We can love, we can have love and reverence and, um, and give ourselves fully, give our heart to this without having to make it so serious because it's not serious. None of it's serious. But I think we add that because we think life is so serious. We take ourselves very seriously. Our choices, our problems, our missteps that we perceive are our missteps. But I don't think that all that seriousness is really so necessary. And that's one thing that is notably absent in a young child <laughs> is seriousness. There's, there's intense emotion sometimes, but there's not really seriousness because there's just presence. There's just enjoyment, spontaneity, naturalness, exploration, wonder, innocence. So very much like Christ said, I love the story. There's a couple different ones around in the gospels and Thomas gospel about Christ. Um, talking to groups of people and the 
a child like tries to push through the crowd and tries to figure out what's going on and they're you know the elders are pushing the child back like get out of here kid this is this is adult stuff you know and and christ is like no 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 let the child come forward you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven until you learn to become like the child right that's a really striking message then really true how do we become like a child Um, part of it, a big part of it is mm, not judging. Unnecessary judging, which most of it is unnecessary outside of maybe a court of law or something <laughs> or maybe in the workplace or whatever. But generally, most of the judgment we have about ourselves and others is completely unnecessary, but it has a high cost. Part of it is that we start taking ourselves too seriously holding ourselves to standards that are impossible that are just that just don't even make sense overlooking the natural spontaneity of ac action of breath of movement so we can regain our spontaneity when we stop judging i think they're very those are very tied together when we judge we're rigid And it comes back to the talk I gave yesterday, really. As I said, it, when all is said and done, when it comes to this, this unbinding process, we really face the, a very simple delusion. <laughs> that is, the world could be the way I'm imagining it right now instead of the way it is right now. Doesn't make sense, but we have a lot, we have a lot of stake in that. We have a lot built on top of it, and judgment's a big part of it. Judgment's intrinsic to that. We're judging that it should or should not be that way. Should should and should not are really meaningless. Not only meaningless, they're they're really diluted actually. I, I can't think of a I've noticed this over a few years. Like I can't think of a good context where should or shouldn't actually make sense. You know? Maybe if you're teaching a child, you know, you shouldn't throw something at another child but even then you're probably not explaining it as clearly as you could right you could explain to the child like in an empathic way why doing that will cause you know that child to feel harm or feel hurt and do you remember a time that that happened to you and you felt hurt right so i think children learn a lot better when we explain things clearly to them but otherwise like i really can't think of a good reason to use the concepts like believe the concepts of should and shouldn't in life they all pretty much always lead to immediate suffering <laughs> because we're resisting what's actually happening. We're resisting what's right in front of our face when we should or shouldn't, when we should all over ourselves or shouldn't all over ourselves or everyone else around us. And it can be hard, of course, when we care, when we look at maybe the bigger picture, we look at the world, we look at, this is a question I get. <clears throat> um, periodically, of course, like how does this awakening process relate to say systemic uh, violence or world violence, things that happen are happening in the world right now and that are 
pretty much always happening somewhere in the world, right? If you look look around, you'll almost always find something pretty heartbreaking going on among humans or humans, you know, the way they're treating animals or the environment and all of it, right? And we're all complicit in it to various degrees that we don't just live in a shack by ourselves eating berries, um, which is not particularly survivable for most people. But uh, so we're all engaging to various degrees in that world. But um, but the question is a good one when you're engaging this, this spiritual process. Um, how does my waking up, how does my investigating my own identity, how's that going to help, you know, what's going on in Israel and Palestine? How's that going to help what's going on in Ukraine and Russia or North Korea or anywhere, right? How's it going to help that? Uh, and part of the answer that I usually give is, well, it may not directly help it, but do you have control over that anyway? You know, um, what you do have domain over is your own attention, your own experience right now and right here. And what I do know is that you will reduce your own tendency for creating delusion, violence, harm around you and to others. I know you will. You'll reduce it. What more, what more would you ask for in a, in a spiritual process than that? You know, can you force anything or anyone else in the world to do what you want it to do, to be more peaceful, to be more anything? You can't, you know, and that's a big part of a, a big, a big part of this process really, I think actually is accepting that because otherwise it will be a big distraction for you. Um, on a, on a, like, a more psychological or personal level, what I usually sense where the question's coming from, you know, everyone's different, but this is what I pick up from it because I've had a, all of these concerns I talk about that people bring up. I've had all of them, of course. Um, but I, what I pick up through my own investigation and just through interactions with people is what the question's really asking is, can I let myself off the hook of having to do what I know I have to do if I turn inward by just staying mad at the world? right? It's always an inside job. It's always the ego sneaking up on you trying to say, well, you know, but there's all those problems out there. So why should I, why should I do anything in here? I mean, does that make sense? It doesn't make sense, right? So thought can be sneaky, but again, that's a complex way of thinking. If you think in a more simple way, well, I, what I do have access to is my own attention. What I do have access to is my own thoughts and my own beliefs. And the closer I look, the more I realize that certain beliefs do seem to cause me to act unkindly sometimes, or certain beliefs cause me to react even. So if we can see that with clarity, then, then, you know, it's already proven that the simplicity of attention, the simplicity of looking closely pays off. It can pay off. It can pay dividends. And the closer we look, and then we actually start seeing that by looking at beliefs really closely, they often dissolve, like, just like, you know, into thin air. And then the reactions often slow down or stop. And we start to perceive things very differently. And we start to feel inner peace. And when we feel inner peace, then we still feel the compassion for the suffering of the world. Um, but we don't use it to put ourselves in our head. Uh, It's a much more simple 
engagement with life. Uh, and then the, I think with some practice, um, excuse me, some insight in this way, with some deepening insight into your own suffering and then into your own identity um, and then beyond identity, with those insights, all of a sudden it becomes very clear that these terrible situations that, that occur in the world, you know, in all over the place, are always stemming from delusion, misunderstanding, misperception, fear, mistrust. And if anyone in those situations or maybe a group of people in those situations were to really go inward and unbind themselves from their own identity, from their own fear, et cetera, et cetera, that potentially could change things, yeah? Um, that, that That's what causes that. That's what causes those situations is, is unconsciousness. And again, it becomes even more clear that the only place you can actually address that unconsciousness is in yourself. It will have effects outwardly usually. Over time it will. But not really through your insistence of imposing that on anyone else. That's where the Zen stink comes in and the warnings they have in the book about it. Just keep going. Just keep taking the process deeper. At some point you may be surprised how that affects the local environment around you. But when that's happening, it's very strange too because... Um, there's no way to take credit for it at all or pride in it at all. But it's sometimes noticed. Um, and it can have profound effects. But the that again, that doesn't arise from your anger at the world, believing the world should be different, uh, believing people should be different, um, questioning and arguing about it with others you know, getting really political and, and arguing and so forth, you start to see like most of that really just sets other people in their own, in their own bias, you know. Um, peace really is the way. Understanding really is the way. Love really is the way. But you have to take it inward for sure. You have to take it, all that peace, all that love, that, that uh, desire for peace, equanimity, all of it, um, it has to be directed also with insight, with a, with a, the precision of um, inquiry inwardly. And, that, and then it leads to insight. It has to be balanced. Love and insight have to be balanced. I, I, and I don't talk about love too often for, for a very specific reason, because it can get co-opted big time by spiritual groups and, and spirituality. It, it is co-opted. And um, it can be used to actually avoid what needs to be done. Um, groups can go into complicity about love and peace and happiness and can become an, almost like a people-pleasing thing. Um, um, like painting over what's actually happening with spiritual concepts. Uh, I think it can take you s some distance, but at some point you, you really have to go inward and, and face everything look at everything, feel everything, all of it, all the textures of emotion, including, and you know, until you, you really don't make a dent in, in the, in the mass of suffering, in my opinion, until you face the ones, all of the, all of the, the emotion tones that are within you, all of the repressed emotions that are within you. And you're going to find all of them, not just love, peace, joy, and harmony. You're going to find hatred, anger, resentment, guilt, shame. Like you have to, you have to find all of it. You have to come into contact with all of that. Um, 
until you until you can be really truly settled as my zen teacher used to say become quiet through and through that doesn't happen when there's inner turmoil or when you're painting a you know rose-colored picture over everything with spiritual terminology so that's 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 a risk of talking about love too much um, because we all want it in the relative but as I said a couple of talks ago, the reason we want it is because we're not actually seeing that below everything there's a, in the identity structure, there's a whole bunch of fear, shame, and doubt. That's what's driving the orientation toward what we consider to be positive, right? So it's just another seeking. It's just another way of seeking and painting over the, the, the wound that's down there, the trauma that's down there that wants to be addressed. Um, just wants to come to light, wants to be accepted. So this is why I talk so much about shadow uh, and why Jung's basically said nothing, deep transformation doesn't happen without going into the shadow, which I agree with. Um, but at some point you do find uh, this, this true unconditional love, uh, which penetrates everything and rejects nothing, resists nothing. But you wouldn't want to suddenly enter a body that resists nothing without that insight that I'm talking about. It would be severely traumatic. You have to realize your capacity, realize, live your capacity through by going through the shadow to come to a place of true non-resistance. <clears throat> um, energetic non-resistance because <clears throat> it opens you to everything no filters no coping mechanisms and yeah so that, that's why ultimately it all comes down to identity that's why i talk about primarily going after the identity structure or at least investigating it don't make conclusions about self or no self or anything just investigate it see what's actually going on um and that's what this is all about. Which also can be a, a, a very simple undertaking. Very simple. One thought at a time. One belief at a time. One emotion at a time. One oh, contraction, you know. Whatever's there, just go, go to it. Go right to it. It's just there to show you what needs to be seen more clearly. What needs to be felt more fully what needs to be heard in a more surrendered way and what feels intense and unnavigable at first becomes profoundly mysterious and intimate and spacious and free. At the end of a one Zen session I did once, um, it was just, I don't know, I don't know if everyone, I remember feeling so much intense suffering through it. And I think many people there did. It was just, you know, that's how retreats are, especially in person. They have a, they have a kind of 
life cycle to them. They have a like a character sometimes, and this one was just like very intense suffering. And I remember at the end, my Zen teacher said something like the last talk, you know, like this talk or whatever. He said something that was really um, heartening, and I carried it through beyond that, you know, for for years and years. And he said, you know, the more your heart opens, the more you you might perceive and just feel that you're just adrift in an ocean of suffering. Not just you, but like sometimes you you can't everywhere you look is suffering, and the suffering caused by delusion of other humans and even you, and you know, it's just like unending. Um, whether you look on the news or whether you look, you know, in what's going on in the family or just everywhere, right? It can, it can feel like just an ocean of suffering. And what he, his point of this was, it can be very easy to, to just ask yourself like, well, what good does any of this do anyway? Right? What does it matter? Why am I meditating? Why am I sitting? Why am I putting myself through more intense suffering in a retreat like this when it's all just a big ocean of suffering anyway? And I can't do a damn thing about it, you know? Um, and he just said, and he's a very experienced Zen teacher at this point in his life, was a practitioner for decades and a teacher for, you know, a couple decades. And, um, and he said, just know that Every time you sit, you know, every time you close your eyes, every time you decide to disengage from the, uh, the thoughts and engage whatever comes up, feel whatever comes up for you, uh, every time you do that, every time you come to retreat, every time you start a round of meditation, you're making a difference. It may never be perceptible to you, uh, but you're making a difference. You got to trust it. You got to trust that. And he spoke from such a place of experience and just Prajna wisdom. Like I could feel the truth of what he was saying because I, I knew it as well, but I didn't have the experience he did, I guess. Uh, and now it's very obvious. It's very obvious to me. It's very obvious the effect this has this, this kind of retreat. Um, but it doesn't have to be a retreat like this where there's hundreds of people online or 250 people at art of living in a, in a room. It can be you disengaging from the usual narrative, sitting down, putting your phone away and sitting for 30 minutes and just allowing everything to be as it is. Not judging. seeing as clearly as possible through non-distraction, through non-agenda. That act always matters. It has an effect, but you may not see it. You may never see it, and that's okay. You have to just trust it, but it, it matters. And it's the best thing you can do, actually, all things being equal, in my opinion. You know, relational activity, there's some very powerfully transformative relational activity available, like a very good therapist, say, or a really good circling group. 
or relational energy work or group um, qigong or yoga or practice. All of that is valuable. It has value. Relational work has value. And again, there are some spaces that I see where it's just incredible, the transformative power there and the compassion there. Like I think of the the work, the the documentary I talk about a lot, the work in the group that um, it's kind of a bunch of people, of course, but uh, surrounded surrounding James McCleary. Yeah, all of that work is so profoundly transformative. Um, and yet I, I want to just reiterate that the reason it, it's such a transformative and revolutionary act to just stop, to sit, to disengage from all of that um, is really because the the ego, the collective ego, is the ultimate opportunist. It has no problem with the transformative work that's going on in the world because there are plenty of other places to come to go from being dormant to active. It's been it's been here for thousands of years, more than that, right? So the 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 collective ego, ah, it's so um, adaptable, so adaptable. It hides all over the place. It hides in religions, right? It hides in spiritual communities. Um, sneaky. And it hides, in, it hides very easily in relational um, situations, which I'm not suggesting anyone completely avoid relational situations for the rest of your life or anything. Even in monastic situations, that doesn't happen, right? But always have, um, I, I always tell people this, even in deep stage realization, even after no self-realization, um, always have a very healthy respect for the power and forces of delusion because they're out there, they're here, and they affect everything in the human psyche and the human behaviors and so forth. So for that reason, um, this is the primary, primary act of compassion what we're doing here starts often with meditation, sitting, becoming quiet. And then it's about insight. It's about directly investigating the identity structure and confronting it. And I'm amazed, truly, truly amazed again and again by the group of people that I come in contact with here, like every question, every questioner, and I've, I've been to other retreats, it's not always like that. And this isn't because of me, by the way, this is because of you, but every questioner I get, every Q and A, I notice again and again, it's really about awakening. You know, it's not about someone trying to get me to get, be complicit in their story, which that does happen in, in some spiritual communities and a lot of them, right? It's, it, people are very authentic here, very, um, sincere about what we're doing, even when they don't know why they're doing it or even how to, how to do it or even what it, the heck it is they're doing, which we all start out that way. We really do have to kind of take this on faith at first. Um, but I can feel it. People are serious. And whether it's in person or through messaging or through emails or in this setting here doing Q&As, I'm amazed again and again and again by the sincerity of everybody here. So I commend you because you know all the things I've been saying, you already know that at some level for sure, or you wouldn't be here. So keep doing what you're doing. And trust yourself.
Trust your intuition, not your thoughts, not your preconceived notions, not your beliefs, but your intuition. The same intuition that brought you here, same intuition that brought you to pick up the book and learn to meditate and take it up. The same intuition that, you know, urged you to actually start to inquire, to look into your own mind, to find out what's going on there. That's the intuition. Take it deeper and deeper. It will, it will just like a, like the lover that never leaves you <clears throat> to use a Tony Parsons phrase. It will just take you deeper and deeper into clarity. Your intuition. If you want to personify it, it's Avalokiteshvara, Guanyin, Kanon. All, all of those mean the same thing. The Bodhisattva of compassion. Guiding you. And in the end, of course, it's all about compassion. But without the insight, without clear seeing, um, compassion will be very situational, conditional. So you have a half a day, um, <laughs> and hopefully a lot of people here have New Year's Day off of work, but many won't, people in medical professions and so forth. But the remaining time you have, you know, I always recommend people just really take it easy. Don't get into philosophical discussions or intense conversations if you can avoid it. Intense social situations if you can avoid it. Those always feel very, very jarring after sitting for hours and hours and days on end. We don't always realize how quiet the mind and body have become until we interact with a loud group or whatever. So give yourself the gift of just letting this settle in. Sit, sit, meditate, take a bath, take a walk, rest, pet your, pet your animals, <laughs> breathe, relax.